Welcome back to the program. If there is a single point of cognitive dissonance in our world today, it usually revolves around change. We love change. We think we like to embrace the new, and yet we fear change. We hang on to the past, forgetting that the past that feels oh so comfortable is but a floating endpoint of previous change. So too it is with the Catholic Church. For the Church, constant change has been one of the most basic things, most everything we think about today with respect to the Church's dogma and doctrine was once revolutionary. Clearly, Pope Francis understands this with his admonition that grace must overtake laws. That's what distinguished historian Gary Wills writes about in his new book, The Future of the Catholic Church with Pope Francis. Gary Wills is one of our most distinguished public intellectuals. He's a historian and the author of the New York Times bestsellers, What Jesus Meant, Why I Am a Catholic, and Why Priests. He's a frequent contributor to the New York Review of Books and other publications. He is a winner of the Pulitzer Prize and Professor Emeritus at Northwestern University. It is my pleasure to welcome Gary Wills back to this program to talk about the future of the Catholic Church with Pope Francis. Gary, thanks so much for joining us. Good to be back. It's great to have you back. When we talk about change inside the church today, and you fill this book with so much history of change that has taken place within the church for centuries and centuries, talk a little bit about what kind of feedback you've been getting with respect to people being able to understand that change has been a constant within the church. Well, that comes as a surprise to some people because... Uh, we we forget how much we have changed as a church. A lot of people like the security of having an infallible pope, even though the infallible pope has never used his power of infallibility except once, Pius XII, for the uh, assumption into heaven of Mary. It's not uh, a lived doctrine. And often what... Uh, persist is the lived doctrine, not the enunciated from the top. When we talk about the church, we should be very careful because many people say the church teaches, the church says this, the church says that. The authorities are not the church. The church are the people of God. The communities that gathered around Jesus at the outset, when there were no popes, no hierarchy, uh, no, Jesus said, don't try to be called rabbi or superior. He said to the uh, apostles, the lowest shall be the top, and the top shall be the lowest, when they were trying to jockey for places at table. And he said, judge not, that you be not judged. It was not a judging community that he formed. On the cross, he said to his, about his executioners, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Uh, Peter went to him and said, how many times should I forgive a brother who's really treated me meanly? Four times? And he said, 40 times four. That's the Jesus that sometimes gets lost because we've gone through many stages of organization, as all charismatic movements must. Charismatic movements, literally grace-driven movements, have to have some structure put together. Who's going to buy the food? Who's going to the in the Acts of the Apostles? They find that they need practical sorts of that, like that, to manage affairs, and so they elected deacons. They never elected a pope or even a priest. There are no priests in the New Testament, uh, except in the late letter uh, to the Hebrews, not written, not written by Paul. 
all of those things were natural developments, and the Spirit guides the whole church, not just the hierarchy. It has lasted so long that Gilbert Chesterton, in his The Everlasting Man, wrote a chapter on the five deaths of the faith, saying, the church has died at least five times, and it should have. It had become corrupt, it had become empty, uh, and yet it was resurrected, because we have a God who knows the way out of the tomb. Uh, that story of death and resurrection is, among other things, honest. We don't have to pretend or lie about, oh, we never changed, we never did wrong. We, there's nothing that we have to repent or alter. What struck me the first thing about this pope is that in one of his earliest interviews, a uh, six-hour interview with his Jesuit brothers, he said, I was wrong. I was a terrible provincial of the Jesuit order in Argentina. They put me in a position of power before I was uh, mature enough, and that was crazy. He said that about his own order, that it was crazy of them. Uh, and he said it was because there was a lost generation of Jesuits, which is true. Uh, uh, many priests left uh, the church and left the Jesuit order after Vatican II, and there was a trickle coming in. So when he finished his studies and never had any pastoral experience, there was a very small pool of talent, and they rushed him in because obviously very promising man. And he said, I, I didn't know how to hold people together to consult. So when he became Archbishop of uh, Buenos Aires, he was wonderful <laughs> at holding people together and consulting, not only all the Catholics, but all the leaders. All, he was a great friend of the Jewish leaders there and a great friend of the Protestants. He went to the evangelical uh, meetings and prayed, he knelt for their blessing. Uh, he also went and prayed at the mosque because, as he says, there's only one God. Some people call him Allah. Some people call him Yahweh. Some people call him Theos or Christos. But it's one God. He made us all. He wants to reach us all. Uh, so that spirit means that he's not going to try to change the church from the top by his own direction. Uh, he doesn't think... Catholics should be lazy receivers who just want the Pope to tell them what to do. Uh, when he called the Synod last year, he told the bishops before they came to consult their faithful, uh, that they, they should be part of the process, uh, which was always the way of the early Church. In fact, priests were elected. Uh, bishops were elected by the priests. Uh, and bishops, once they were elected, could never leave their community. Uh, they were pledged to them. They, had, they were the boss. They had appointed him. And so through long stretches of the Middle Ages, no bishop could become a pope because he would have to leave his diocese. Uh, St. Augustine in Hippo in Africa asked permission of his people when he went to a council in Carthage or asked permission to take some time off to finish a long book. That's always been some form of the Catholic Church adapting to changes. We became a monarchy in an age of monarchs and a patriarchy in an age when males ruled. Uh, we've 
shed a lot of that, not all of it. Uh, but in the 19th century, Pope Pius IX said, if you take away my temporal realms, the church will crumble and disappear. Uh, it didn't. And many of the monarchical heirs have been removed. And this pope certainly wants no monarchical heirs. They showed him the papal palace where he, the others stay, and he said, oh, no, I don't want to be all alone up there. I want to come back to the Casa Santa Marta. Hmm. That was a, that's a building built in the Vatican for the, to house the conclave fathers, the bishops when they come to, uh, cardinals when they come to elect the new pope. So he had room 201 there during the conclave, and at the end of it, he just moved to a slightly larger room, 207. Uh, he's, he wants to be in touch with people. He was given a first-class ticket to fly to the conclave, and he changed it for a coach. Uh, he says shepherds should have the smell of the sheep. They have to get out there with the people. They have to be with the people. Uh, and he said it's not enough to preach against poverty. You have to go and share the ordeal of the poor. Uh, and he did that as Archbishop. He drove around, he rode around on the public bus. Uh, not too many bishops in America get on public buses that I know of. Uh, so he is harking back to different traditions in the church without wanting to pose any abrupt break. He quotes Benedict and John Paul II constantly in his major pronouncements so far. He's kept up very good relations with Benedict. He's kept on his appointees and key positions and promoted some of them. He's not uh, somebody who says, everybody's been wrong and I'm right, uh, because he tried to do that as the provincial of the Jesuits, and he found out that was not the right way to do it. How much of it comes from his understanding of the symbolic language of all of those things that you've been talking about versus a deeper and even more profound understanding of what you touched on earlier, that so much of change that's taken place has come from the grassroots and that it's been this yeah. constant struggle between the church itself and its hierarchy? Yeah, he, uh, he certainly does feel that the Church acts through many channels, the Holy Spirit acts through many channels. Uh, so he's not going to exclude anyone. You know, when it was brought up that some Catholic bishops had tried to, or had, exclude politicians who didn't have the right doctrine on abortion from communion. And he said, the Eucharist is not a prize for good behavior. It's a medicine for the weak. He also said the church should be like a field hospital after a battle. When you go out there and see wounded people, you don't go up to them and ask, uh, how's your cholesterol count? Have you been keeping a good diet? He said, you look at the wounds and you heal them. Uh, some people in the church, I think, are like the people who come out onto the field after a battle and shoot the wounded. Talk a little bit about some of the dramatic changes that you touch on in, in so many of the essays and so many of the chapters in the book, things like Second Vatican Council, and, and even going much further back than that, so many times the Church has been willing and found ways to make significant changes. Yeah, often it's because the believers themselves realize that the position they had been put in was not workable, so they just walked away from it. It didn't have to have a pope tell them, 
that doesn't apply anymore. For instance, for a long time, it was a mortal sin to take usury, to take interest on a loan. And people just walked away from that, and it disappeared from the teaching. Uh, there, For a long time, the Pope was allowed to impose interdicts, so that if people in a realm uh, whose king he was fighting with uh, didn't support him, they would be deprived of the sacrament. Uh, so if you were in a realm whose king was fighting with the Pope, and you died, there were no last rites for you. There was no burial in consecrated ground. Uh, we walked away from those things. In the same way, we're walking away from the teaching against contraception. Every poll shows that in their fertile years, over 80% of American Catholics use some form of contraception. Uh, the, the popes have kept on the futile exercise of trying to impose a dead law, but you can't revive a dead law when it, there's no, no strong argument, no scriptural basis, when bishops and theologians and others all agree that the, it was supported originally from a misconception. The churches, teaching churches, I should say, uh, attitude on contraception was that it was onanism. Onan had spilled his seed in the ground, so that was like uh, contraception, preventing the seed from being fertile. That was the basis of the uh, church, uh, capable teaching on contraception, until Bible scholars came along and said, that's not the point at all. He was condemned because he did not have sex with his brother's widow, which the law commanded him to do so his brother would have an heir. Uh, when that was gone, they tried to come up with natural law arguments, and Paul VI called together a, a, a meeting of experts, theolog theological, theological uh, experts and laymen and women, and they said, no, that's, there's no natural law on this. And yet Cardinal Ottaviani went to him and said, the church will fall apart if you say there was, that it made a mistake. Uh, the same thing that had been said to other people, like Pius the Ninth, if, if you if you lose your temporal realm, the church will fall apart. The church doesn't fall apart; it's going to last. And the popes sometimes are a hindrance, often a help. But luckily, the people have kept the faith under really terrible, tyrannical, torturing. Uh, incestuous popes, uh, the idea that we're a perfect society can't stand an honest look any more than we can do that about America. America has been guilty of immense historical sins, slavery, uh, the extermination of Indians. We were all guilty of that. We love our country. We feel united in that, and we will love our country, but we shouldn't lie and say, we're perfect. We were always perfect. We never did anything wrong. Well, this Pope doesn't say that about the Church, either, that it, it's perfect. It will never do anything again that goes against what's been done before. Uh, he said one time, I don't like to hear uh, that hasn't been done, uh, as if that were the only criterion for action. 
in many ways, when we look at the church hierarchy through this lens of history that you take us through in the future of the Catholic Church with Pope Francis, it becomes clear that, that the hierarchy has been nothing more than a political system in and of itself. And that's understandable. Uh, in, the, in an age of monarchs, all authority looked monarchical, and so the, the church uh, top tier became monarchical. In an age of patriarchy, it became very much against women's importance, dignity. Um, in an age of anti-Semitism, it became anti-Semitic. And one of the greatest changes in the Second Vatican Council was their finally admitting that great sin in our past. Uh, and going back to Paul, who said, I am a Jew of Jews. God has not canceled his covenant with them. He can't go back on his word. We will all be saved through them. Uh, the Second Vatican Council went back to that teaching after a long aberration. Uh, so it's like our sin of slavery in America. Uh, the fact that we were guilty of it doesn't make the church less uh, lovable. Uh, sometimes when you see it correct, see people correcting it, it becomes more lovable. It's interesting to see when looking at, for example, as you touch upon the strain of anti-Semitism that was in the church for so long, the way that was addressed in large measure by the Second Vatican Council, and see the attitude today towards the Muslim community. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, this pope not only was friends with the Muslims, he went to their mosque and prayed with them, went to the funeral of their sheikh and prayed for him. Uh, he is somebody who realizes that the Quran is a spiritual treasure. And those who have lived by it through the years are no more bound by some violent passages in it than we are by some violent passages in our Old Testament and New Testament. There's some very violent passages in the book of Revelation, for instance, which would seem to call us to holy war. But now we know that what the Muslims actually act on and believe, like what we as Christians act on and believe, is quite apart from what some fanatical fringe says. The Gallup did an extremely extensive uh, and expensive uh, survey of principally or predominantly uh, Muslim population countries, and asked, do you approve of the attack on the World Trade Center? Exactly 7% said they do. 93% said they don't. Now, it would be crazy for us to go to war with the 93, thinking we were warring with the 7. And the Pope knows that. Uh, both aspects of it. He is very open and admiring of the spiritual traditions of the Muslims. But he also says that ISIS is an evil organization, a murderous one, and you can oppose uh, violently uh, to, in self-defense, the kind of war that Augustine approved of. So uh, if this pope can make us all realize that we're not at war with uh, Allah or the Quran, uh, 
we're at war with some crazy people. Uh, and we've got some crazy people in our religious heritage, too. Uh, we don't want our crazies to talk to their crazies and determine the history of the world. Talk a little bit about what's different for this pope in creating and pushing forward these ideas and this change in the unusual situation of having the last pope down the block. <laughs> that is uh, touching. He, he has to keep on very good terms with him, and he wants to. Uh, he cites him constantly in the joy of the gospel, his principal document. He's kept his people around him. Uh, now he knows that we need many of the things the Pope lends us, stability, a gathering place, uh, a way to talk to each other. Uh, that's what the Popes have always provided, if we were willing to take it. Uh, and he wants to provide that without in any way lessening what good impact uh, the papacy can have. We've already seen a, a case of that in his acting as intermediator between America and Cuba to get rid of a policy that was long obsolete and senseless. Uh, he can do that uh, as uh, a person who is a spiritual leader and a, with political ties. Uh, other popes have done that. Benedict XVI tried to make good relations with the Muslims and did it clumsily in his Regensburg speech, uh, but he was trying to do the same thing. Pius XII tried over and over to be an intermediary between the powers during the Second World War and to bring peace to them. Paul VI went to the uh, UN and said, uh, no more war, not more, not ever again. Uh, so the, the Pope is a, has a big megaphone, and he can do a lot of good things and this Pope seems to be uh, particularly best at it. One of the things you talk about is the fact that, that various Popes in the past and hierarchies in the past have had litmus tests within the context of these various doctrines that we've, we've been talking about. To what extent does this Pope, does Francis, have a kind of alternative litmus test, or is his test that there is no test? Well, a litmus test means you exclude. He's, he wants to include as far as you can. Now, there are, of course, uh, tests of uh, Christianity. Uh, the Nicene Council established many of them. If you don't believe in the Incarnation, uh, you're not uh, our kind of Christian. Although Arians didn't believe in the Incarnation, and they were Christians. Uh, and this Pope says... While we honor our view as what we think is the best view, that doesn't mean that God has cut off other people, that the Holy Spirit, we've said, only send grace down on us Catholics and don't do it to them. They're, they're not part of us. You know, in the Gospel of Luke, the disciples are set out on their own for the first time uh, without Jesus with them. And they come back to him, and he says, how did you do? And they said, we did very well. We were casting out devils, healing people, uh, spreading the kingdom. And he said, but we came across one man who was casting out devils in your name, and we made him stop because he wasn't one of us. And Jesus said, why did you do that? If he was doing it in my name, he's on my side. 
Well, that's the attitude that many people, many other popes in the past have had too. But this pope is especially urgent to say, we don't have a monopoly on grace. We don't have a monopoly on truth. Uh, we never did. Uh, that's a dangerous view to take. He wants to be one of us. And finally, Gary, what is the significance of this for non-Catholics? Talk a little bit about that. Well, non-Catholics are admiring him a lot. And one of the reasons is that he took a kind of magic name. Francis of Assisi is not the possession of the Catholic Church. He's admired by all Christians and some a considerable number of non-Christians. He is a wonderful example of the power of love and of inclusion. He embraced lepers. Uh, he made friends with people. Uh, he lived with the poor. He told his followers to live with the poor. They, he, that was so radical that they tried to water that down after he died. Uh, but for a pope to take the name of a person who is not in any hierarchical position, who was not even a priest, you know, Francis was never a priest. Uh, that's a symbol of tremendous meaning. So I think that alone has opened up people's willingness to look at him as a man from God. And you can do that and try to better your life without becoming a Catholic. Uh, I think he knows that and wants that to be the case. When when we were, my wife and I were at the Basilica in Assisi, we went up to the glass case where his last uh, garment was, and it was a rag. It was patched a rag. You know, I think this Pope doesn't like a lot of the ceremony and the, that kind of thing. I think if he could, he, he would wear those rags. Gary Wills. The book is The Future of the Catholic Church with Pope Francis. It's just out from Viking. Gary, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. It was a privilege. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.